Last week, uh, we ended our series on the book of Acts that we began at the beginning of the year. Landed uh, that plane last week, and we're going to take off again uh, this week by uh, beginning a series. It's not just a series that we're going to do on Sunday mornings uh, in, in our assemblies, but it's also what we're going to be doing in our Bible classes, our middle school classes, our high school classes, the study of the book of Ephesians. And as we, we always do before we go to God's Word, let's ask God to bless us and, and to give us what it is that we need to be able to discern this message and apply it to our hearts. And so, if you will, bow your heads and join your hearts with me as we pray. Oh, Father, in listening to Alfred read these words, I just felt the thrill again of the greatness of your gospel in our lives. But at the same time, Father, it's so important that we do business with this text because the great teachings and the great truths that form the foundation of our faith, unfortunately at times these things grow cold in our hearts. And when they grow cold in our hearts, there is a distance that lengthens between you and ourselves. So we pray, Father, that the thoughts of this passage that Paul has written down for us be like a deep river. We pray that these words awaken our hearts, not like a startled bird, flying about in fear, but instead, may we be awakened like a child, awakening from sleep to see a heavenly smile. To this end, we pray, Father, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, so that we turn toward you in all that we are. In this we pray, in the name of our Savior Jesus. And all the church said. There are a couple of initials up on the board. F-T-T. Do you know what they stand for? Now for a lot of people, uh, you know, these are probably never seen before initials. You know, I don't even really think you see them in any of the texting code that we use. But if you're in the medical profession, they're probably very, very familiar to you. The, the letters F-T-T mean failure to thrive. Failure to thrive. In the medical world, it describes adults that are not doing very well. It could be some physical function has become impaired. It might be that there's evidence of malnutrition and the body's not getting everything that it needs in order to, to, to function. It might be that even a little bit of depression or some profound depression is, is evident. Or it might be that the normal cognitive powers uh, of, of a human being, an adult human being, have some, somehow become impaired. The point is, these are the signs of a person who physically and emotionally is not thriving. I think these letters could also be used as a de designation to describe the spiritual life of a lot of believers. Failure to thrive. And the signs of it might be something like this, that there is uh, no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit blossoming 
or even budding in our lives, that there's a lack of the fruit of spirit development. It might be a failure to live in the truth of God's grace. Or it might be an insufficient understanding of what it means to be saved. I, I think that this reason, probably more than anything else, is at the beginning of Paul's writing, first chapter, to the church in Ephesus. The reason is a limited understanding of what it means to be saved by God. Now for a lot of us, we grew up thinking that when we were saved and when we experienced salvation, that it really meant and mostly meant the forgiveness of sins. Which indeed is something that you experience and that is something that Paul will talk about in chapter 1 and verse 7. When you are saved, you do experience the forgiveness of sins. But when you are saved, when you, when you are redeemed, there is so much more that takes place, and it can be described by a four-letter word, L-I-F-E, life. In fact, salvation, in a lot of ways, at a lot of different levels, can be understood to mean life. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has, say it, life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it, some of the old translations say, to have the abundant life. Some of the newer translations say, as we have it up on the screen, to have it to the full. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3 that no one, you know, I said, verily, verily, I say unto you, no one will enter the kingdom of God unless they are what? born again, which means to come into a new kind of life. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul is writing to the church and says, this is what happens to you when you find yourself in Christ. Your life and the way that you live in that kingdom of darkness, in this kind of a kingdom, becomes a different kind of a life when you're transferred into the kingdom of light or the kingdom of the Son in whom he loves. And then we find Paul saying the same sort of a thing in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll get to it in a couple of weeks. He says, because of his great love for us, God, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. My brothers and sisters, there is nothing in Scripture to suggest that a Christian should enjoy the benefits of the forgiveness of sins at the expense of the life of Christ on the cross and then live as if they had never heard of the Messiah. Salvation means that you have been saved from one kind of a life in order to live a different kind of a life in Him or in Christ. This is what Paul explains in this 14-verse opening text of, of Ephesians. Now when you think about that text, it, it's, it's hard enough to get our mind around it even after it's been broken up. But the truth of the matter is it's just one long sentence. From, uh, from verse 3 to verse 14, in our English text, that is just one long sentence. Now, when you read a lot of the commentators, one of the things they'll say is that this is just bad grammar. Are we really saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't know a comma from a period to, a, you know, 
Is that what we're really saying? You know what I think is happening here? I think Paul gets caught up in the beauty and the greatness of what God is doing in the gospel. And when he gets so caught up in it, and he begins to wax eloquent about all of the greatness of what it is that God the Father has done, and what uh, God the Son has done, and God the Spirit has done. You know what he does? He gushes. He gushes. I mean, he is beyond elation, and it won't be the last time in this letter. I mean, think about what happens when a young woman has found the love of her life, and one day, out of the blue, in a surprise, gets down on one knee and says, I choose you out of all of the other women in the world. I choose you to be my wife and for me to be your husband. And he opens up the ring, and what does she do? She gushes. In fact, it's hard for her to talk for about a week. I mean, she's just walking around like this, you know, for about a week. Think about what happens when, and, and this happens uh, more frequently than, than you would expect, uh, in, in the course of about 35 years, I've done over 200 weddings. And one of the most amazing moments is when that, that husband-to-be, the groom, writes down his own vows. And he begins to talk about the greatness of what it means for this young woman to be his wife. About a year ago, on New Year's Day, in the freezing rain, I heard... Uh, the, the vows of, of a young 25, 26-year-old man that I thought were some of the most incredible vows I had ever heard in my life. Not only were they sort of epic and Shakespearean and, and profound and deep like a river, but they, they were said with such emotion and with such, such zeal for the love that this young man had for his wife that he just gushed as he just talked about all of the wondrous ways that she had blessed his life. That's what Paul's doing. And to help us to get our mind around this, uh, here's what I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks. Uh, today, in the next two Sundays, we're going to look at these 14 verses like they're a song. And the first verse is going to be, uh, this is what God the Father has accomplished, the chorus to the praise of His glory. And then next week, we're going to look at what it is that God the Son has accomplished, chorus to the praise of His glory, That'll be next week. And then the third week into it, it's going to be what God the Spirit has accomplished. Again, the course is to the praise of His glory. And that's uh, verses 6, 12, and 14. So this morning, let's just think very briefly about what the Father has done. There are three things. People who have been saved by God are, number one, blessed with every spiritual blessing. What has the Father done? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Look again at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with, say it with me, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, on this particular point, not going to spend a lot of time here, but think about this. What happens when you bless someone or you bless something? What are you doing? When you curse, which is the opposite, when you curse a life or you curse something, what you're trying to do is to break it down. You're trying to tear it down. But when you bless someone or you bless something, what you're trying to do is you're trying to build it up. You're trying to make it strong. You give them in the blessing what is good for their welfare and their thriving and their flourishing. 
And this is what Paul says God has done for you when you became his son. When you became a saved human being, you became the recipient of every spiritual blessing that God has to offer. The resources that God endows your life in Christ with are just so numerous that Paul does not have time to, to, to enumerate them all at once. But the point that he's trying to make as he just goes on and on and on and on for 14 verses in this letter, the point he is trying to make is that all the things that you need to thrive as a disciple, to become a full-blooded disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, none of those things are going to be withheld from you. You get it all. Your life is now endowed with every spiritual blessing whether or not you find yourself in the darkest of nights or the highest of mountains you have everything you need to reflect the fact that the gospel has become embedded the truth of what it is that christ has accomplished in christ jesus that now is embedded and a part of you everywhere you go and every experience that you have everything that you long for in this life Joy and peace and love and strength and companionship with God, all those things are yours. Amen? Number two, chose us to be holy and blameless. Verse four, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, many of you know uh, the name Garrison Keillor, uh, radio shows for, uh, show host for a number of, of, of decades, Prairie Home Companion, a writer, columnist, uh, sometimes a pretty good interview. He, he writes a piece where he recalls the childhood pain of being chosen last for the baseball teams. And he writes, the captains are down to their last grudging choices, slow kid for catcher, someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it, they choose the last ones two at a time, you and you, because it makes no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they deal for us as handicaps. If you take him, then you've got to take him, they say. Sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower, but just once I'd like Daryl to pick me first and say him. I want him, the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes, you, come on over here. But I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. End of quote. Do you ever think about the fact that you are so valuable to God that he chose you early before the creation of the world? with enthusiasm chose you in christ before the creation of the world means right there at the very very beginning you were chosen but it's here that the illustration breaks down a little bit we were not chosen because we were good or we are our friends or because we're talented we were chosen in spite of the fact that we are none of those things truly in god's eyes Paul will say in Romans chapter 5 that it was while we were God's enemies that we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. What it means is that even though we weren't chosen because we were good looking, 
or that we were talented or because we were friends. In fact, we were enemies. What it does mean is that we were chosen in love and with enthusiasm. We were chosen because we are wanted. What does it do to know that you are chosen to be a wife or a husband? Does it not trigger a change? In, in, in being chosen, you, you are becoming what you have never been before, a husband or a wife. Now notice what he says. It, you're not chosen because you're good. What he says is we are chosen to become something. We are chosen to have this character change. We are chosen to become holy and blameless. What's the difference? Motivation. Motivation is the gigantic difference maker. Think about a medical student for a minute. Here's this medical student who is working diligently, denying themselves completely during their years of study. I mean, they're working all the time. There's no sleep. There's no relationships. There's no fancy meals. There's no leisure time. He's bending over backwards for, uh, for the patients. She's showing compassion to all of the, the patients that she's being assigned. But as soon as they get the degree, they back off. That indicates that they were probably not into it for the right reasons. They weren't in it for the patients. They weren't in it for the healing or the alleviating of the suffering of human beings. What it means is they were probably in it for the prestige and the title or for the money or for the status. But the bottom line is they were in it for themselves. Now, there are lots of very good people who do some very good things in the world, but underneath, underneath, there is anxiety and there is panic because they're never sure if it's enough because they don't know whether or not they've been chosen. Will I be acceptable in, in people's eyes? Will God be impressed? They live in anxiety because they don't realize that before the creation of the world, in Christ, they were chosen. And in being chosen, it triggers a being of, and a living of a different sort. Think about what Paul writes to Titus while he's in Crete. Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. There it is, grace and salvation to all people. So what does that do? We receive grace and we're saved. Paul continues, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the reappear, or the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know what? Uh, knowing that you're chosen, does it drives out the hypocrisy. Jesus was talking about this when you are a disciple and you know that he is yours and you are his, it drives out the hypocrisy. And right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, he gives three examples where that kind of hypocrisy is driven out. He says, when, when you know, when Paul says you become holy and blameless because you know that you have been chosen, you're able to do what it is that Jesus is talking about, that first century three acts of piety, the giving of your money, the prayer time, and the fasting. He says, you know what? You can live a holy and blameless life because you were chosen by God. That means that when you're giving your money, you don't have to sound the trumpet when you give of your money, but you can give it away in a way that nobody knows. 
Why? Because you, you can be generous because you know that God has been generous to you. And then when it comes to prayer, you don't have to wear the special robes and pray in public in such a way that everyone thinks that you and God are BFF. You don't have to try and prove that to everyone else. Why? Because you know you've been chosen. And you can even go into your closet, the most private place in your house, and pray to God, and it's okay. Or when it comes to fasting, you fast in a way that, calls, that does not call attention to yourself. Being chosen by God, knowing that we were enemies and alienated from God, but yet He chose us before the beginning of, the, of creation transforms us and triggers that holy and blameless lifestyle that we, we continue to develop as time goes on and on. And then finally, He adopts us as children. In verse 5, in love, He predestined us. Write out that word predestined next to your point someplace there on that piece of paper. He has predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. I want to step out just for a second of, of what we're doing here with this text and talk a little bit about predestination. Uh, the word causes a lot of consternation in our religious world. Uh, in Reformed theology, other, uh, another way of referring to that is Calvinism, the highest value, the high watermark, is, is God's ultimate sovereignty. Uh, in a lot of ways, Reformed theology is protecting and, and guarding God's sovereignty in all things. The point being that we are fallen, and because we are fallen, we cannot choose God. This is a literal understanding of places like Romans chapter 3 that says, there's no one who seeks God, there is no one who chooses God. Because if we could choose God in free will, then God would not get all of the credit, we would get some of it. And so the idea of the, the doctrine of predestination, doctrine of election, is that God has to save you, save your heart, in order for you to be able to respond to the gospel. Because the Bible says no one seeks God, no one chooses God, Romans chapter 3. I would argue that's, uh, that's too literal of an understanding of those passages from the Old Testament. What I would do is give this illustration that when my daughter Jessica was a little toddler and was beginning to eat solid food, her mom had a job, I had a job, we worked for the money to buy the groceries, we would buy the groceries, we would cook the baby food, we would put it in a bowl, we would put the food on the spoon, and then we would kind of do the little airplane game, so we tried to get her to eat it, and here's the thing, Jessica could either accept the blessing of the food, or she could reject the blessing of the food, but if she accepted it, nobody in their right mind would say, Jessica fed herself. In free will, you can accept what it is that the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts of men and women all over the world, and that is convicting them, John chapter 16, of, of, of God's righteousness and of sin and of judgment. The Holy Spirit is at work in our world convicting people of what's wrong, not only with the world, but that they're not perfect, and giving them the opportunity to respond to the gospel. The word predestination is actually a word that, it, it, it's a construction term. It's, it's, it means that, uh, you know, it, use an example from our own church, Efton Giles does this every day. He looks up in somebody's house, they say, I want to have some crown molding up there. So Efton goes back to the shop, he takes out a, a, a two-by-four, and he says, okay, this two-by-four is going to be shaped so that it becomes what it's supposed to be in that corner. 
And it's a construction term. It's about shaping. And what Paul is trying to say is that God has chosen you and He's blessed you. And you know what all of those spiritual blessings are doing and what the choosing is supposed to trigger in you? The idea, the knowledge, the privilege, the honor, the great opportunity to be shaped into a child of God. That's what it's all about. It gives God great pleasure to be a father of humans, His children. In fact, Paul is going to say in uh, chapter 2, verse 19, he's going to talk about the greatness of being a part of, of God's household. And that household made up of all kinds of people who put their faith in Christ. Now when you think about it, God is our creator. Anybody disagree with that? God is our creator. But it means something different altogether to say that not only God is our creator, but he's our father. Being a father is something altogether different. There are a lot of things you owe your creator for your existence, but the relationship with father, who is your creator, is something altogether different. You have a father who loves you like a son. You're rich because you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're chosen in Christ, and this triggers a character change. You become holy and blameless. And then this high-water mark of the passage, you become his son. And ladies, please don't fret over the gender language. In the time of Paul, this would be something to rejoice over. In the ancient world, sons got everything. The daughters, they received nothing. But in Christ, Paul is saying that all the children, the sons and the daughters, get everything that God as Father offers. It's not only His desire, it's His pleasure to make you that, His and His alone. So you know what that means? It means Everett Heiston. You're rich, and you're chosen, and you're family. You know what that means, Ben? It means that you are rich, and you're chosen, and you're family. You know what that means, Lori? That means that you are blessed, and that you are chosen and you are family. You know what that means? Catherine Lee? It means that you are blessed and rich. And you are chosen. And you're family. Take a second and turn to the person to you and say, you know what? You're rich and you're chosen and you're family. Take a second to say that to the person next to you. Let's say this together. I'm rich, I'm chosen, and I'm family. Let's say it together. I'm rich, I'm chosen, and I'm family. And that should change our life. That should change our life because of the riches, of the greatness, of what it is that God is doing in our life. I want to be holy and blameless. I want to be that person that God has chosen me to be in Christ. I want to experience, whether I'm in the ditch emotionally because of grief or, or something or in the highest mountaintop. I want to experience every spiritual blessing that makes me a disciple of Jesus, walking in his steps. And you know what? Every day, every day that I take breath, I'm his child. He not only knows my name, he knows where I live, he knows my heart, he knows my soul, and he chooses me anyway before the creation of the world. His son, his son died for us. 
And it's not just about the forgiveness of my sins. It's about living a different kind of a life. It's a life that exemplifies the beauty of what it is that God has done. That try as we may, it defies It's beyond our imagination. But what it means is that every day we live out the implications and we are the beautiful people that this creation needs to see the light and the love and the compassion and the grace and the plan of God for human beings. Does that make sense? This is who we are and this is what we do in this community. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And this is our opportunity to thank God for all of the great things that just these first six verses of Ephesians has taught us about what it is that God is doing in bringing His kingdom into our heart and making us a part, a citizen of His family and a member of that kingdom. And we're going to have some of our shepherds down here. Perhaps there are some ways that our church can, can help you get on track. Perhaps there's some ways that we can help you to understand even more clearly what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a believer, a follower of the Messiah Jesus of Nazareth. And if that's the case, we want you to come down during the singing of this next song of praise to talk to these shepherds and for the rest of us, let's stand and let's praise God.